What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 13, lucky episode 13 of the Movie Brewer podcast, the podcast where we talk not just about movies, but the stories behind actually getting them made. One of the first things that you're told in any screenwriting class is to write what you know. And when Cameron Crowe sat down to write 2000's Almost Famous, it was a story he knew intimately because it was his story. As a writer for Rolling Stone in the 70s, Crowe lived the life he wrote about, and every aspect of that script feels more authentic because it came from reality. But of course, before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead. Oh, yeah, spoilers ahead. I, I always say that, but sometimes I don't know if I actually do spoil these movies. But for now, we'll say, spoilers ahead. This is the Movie Brewer Podcast. This week is one of the demo tape series from Exhibit A Brewing. It's demo tape West Coast style DDH double IPA. A lot of words, but I'm really excited to drink this. Exhibit A is a brewery located in Framingham, Massachusetts, and it's been around since 2016 when veteran brewer Matthew Steinberg. Uh, snatched up the space that Jack's Abbey, which is another local brewery here in, in Massachusetts, uh, was vacating. They were moving about a mile down the road to a brand new, larger facility. And Steinberg, who had been a brewer for the past 25 years, saw an opportunity and used that opportunity to launch his own brewery and came out with what, for the most part, has been a very hop-forward line. He's very, very intrigued and inspired by the actual hops that he puts in his beers. Um, the demo tape series uh, is the name of their small batches. Small batches usually being something where they want to experiment with something, want to try a different combination of hops or malt or what have you, but they don't want to put out a full line. They don't want to invest huge amounts of inventory and time into brewing something that might not be marketable. So they've done a bunch of different ones. Um, this one, like I said, uh, is a double dry hopped West Coast style double IPA. When I say that Steinberg is very hop forward with his beers, this is no exception. Uh, I'm looking at, it looks like four different hops in here. We got the Chinook, the Centennial, the Cascade, and Columbus hops. Uh, I think you might sense a theme going on there. But yeah, this looks pretty fantastic. I do a lot of New England IPAs. There was also a New England IPA uh, available from this kind of round of demo tapes, but I do a lot of New England IPAs here. So I went with this West Coast style. West Coast IPAs don't really get the credit that they once did these days. Um, so I'm going to crack this open and we'll see how we go. All right. That was a damn good pour, if I do say so myself. So I'm looking at it here. In no way could you describe this beer as hazy. It is a darker, not dark, I wouldn't, dark is the bad word for it, but it is a amber 
colored beer, clear as you would expect from a West Coast IPA. Uh, Aroma-wise, not a lot. Some of these beers, I open them up and they're, you know, kind of a a punch to the nostril. Can I say that? Is that a term, punch to the nostril? I don't know. Uh, This one's kind of subtle, but but it is there. Uh, I want to say there's a little bit of something fruity there, but it's very, very, it's very, very subtle. Um, So I'm going to take a sip. We'll see how this goes. Oh, yeah. That is a hop-forward beer, to be sure. I don't think I said at the top, but this is an 8% beer. Um, Continuing with what appears to be my theme. I swear that, like, when I do these, it's not intentional that I'm picking these high ABV beers. It just kind of, I find one that I really like and really ties in with the movie, and then I look on the side, and it's it's inevitably an 8% or higher. So this is really good. Like I said, you can taste, you can taste the hops in there. It's not, it's not complex. You, you'd expect, um, you'd expect a deep complexity with four different hops in there, but this one's very nice, very smooth. And yeah, I'm going to really enjoy playing this demo tape. No, that's a terrible transition. So let's talk about the movie. As I said, our movie this week is Almost Famous from 2000, directed by Cameron Crowe. As always, I'm going to start off with a brief synopsis, and we'll go from there. So, set in 1973, Almost Famous follows the adventures of 15-year-old William Miller, a music-obsessed superfan who unintentionally lands a gig writing for Rolling Stone magazine. Charged with writing a 3,000-word article on up-and-coming band Stillwater, William is thrown headfirst into the rock star world he admires so much. So there you go. Not a lot of plot in that description, but this movie has a lot going on in it. Because, like I said at the top, it's drawn from a very complex world that Cameron Crowe was in. Much like the the hero William Miller, Cameron Crowe was a writer for Rolling Stone in the 1970s. And followed all the major bands that you know and love from that era. We're talking Led Zeppelin. We're talking the Allman Brothers, uh, Alice Cooper, The Who, The Eagles. And it was a history, and it was something that was a major part of Crow's life. And he'd always kind of had in the back of his mind the idea that he would make this into a film one day, or that there was a story to be told here. But it wasn't until he kind of found himself looking for a new project with some clout in Hollywood and those around him kind of looked to him and said, this is a story that you want to be telling. This is a story that you're never going to be able to let live in the past until you've done it its proper honor. So he sat down to write it and he wrote it based on his deep, deep knowledge and memories of the time. The opening scene and the opening credits, you see various different drawers full of memorabilia and William throughout the film is grabbing souvenirs and this and that and that is Cameron Crowe he had all of those things collected because there was something about that time that he couldn't quite let go the main band in the film Stillwater became a amalgamation of several different bands uh, many of which I I mentioned at the top but we're talking the Allman Brothers Led Zeppelin the Eagles uh the lead guitarist of Stillwater, Russell Hammond, is based primarily off of Glenn Frey, 
from the Eagles. And it was Glenn Frey who actually uttered the words, just make us look cool, which kind of serves as a basis really for the themes of the entire movie. So as I said, he he wanted to write it to sort of do honor to all these memories he had. And this was the time. Cameron Crowe had just come off the film Jerry Maguire, which was a huge success. And as I've said so many times before in this podcast, when you have something that's a huge success, it really puts you in a position to do a passion project. And you have more clout, really, than you ever will again in your career. And this was that moment for Cameron Crowe. So when he sat down to write it, he originally had in mind Brad Pitt and Sarah Poli as the leads, as Russell Hammond and Penny Lane, respectively. And when you're in the position that Crow was in, you start writing with certain actors in mind. It can serve as a good basis for getting the production off the ground. And indeed it did. For a long time, both were attached to the film. But unfortunately, as so often happens with timing and things like that, Sarah Poli committed to another film and Brad Pitt try as he might, couldn't really wrap his head around the role. Now, Brad Pitt, as I've said before, is a fantastic actor, but some things just don't mesh. And thank God, because from there we got Billy Crudup in the lead, and I don't know about you, but he is more this character than I think any other role I've ever seen him in. So with that, let me pivot real quick, and let's talk about the cast. The cast here, and again, I always say this, but the cast here is unbelievable not only for its actual talent, but for the talent that Crow and casting director Gail Levin were able to find in the early days of their careers. So to start out, we have, like I said, Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup was not quite really a leading man at this point, nor could he play guitar, but he embodied the character and gave a sense of realism that Crow was looking for of course him not playing guitar was a problem that was one of the first things that was remedied once he came on board he was actually taught how to play guitar for this film by none other than peter frampton peter frampton being a good friend to both cameron crowe and his wife nancy wilson Uh, we'll come back to peter frampton in in a little bit we also get kate hudson in the role of penny lane one of her more iconic roles again i think in my opinion She originally, back in the Brad Pitt days of the production, auditioned and was cast in the role of Anita, William's sister who leaves home. But when the production kind of fell apart and Brad Pitt left, she held on and she pushed and pushed and pushed and proved to Cameron Crowe that she had what it took to take on this role. And keep in mind, she was only 21 at the time. This was... This was a big push for someone in her her position. We also have Frances McDormand in the ever-important role of Elaine Miller, William's mother. Cameron, obviously, when he was writing it, based this character off of his actual mother. And she was present a lot of the time on the set. And it, it proved to be a bit of an odd situation for him. I mean, there are scenes in this film about the stories of him losing his virginity and things like that. Um, So, you know, a little bit awkward to have your mom hanging around and then Frances McDormand in all her talent playing your mom and kind of giving you that vibe from both directions. (laughs) It's funny. Cameron actually tried to keep 
the two of them apart. He didn't want his mother influencing McDorbin's performance. You know, he wanted to keep it pure, wanted to make sure that she wasn't just trying to do an imitation. Until one day, about three days into filming, when he walked to her trailer and found both Francis McDormand and his mother sitting having lunch. So that, you know, kind of went out the, the, the window pretty quick. We also get the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman as rock critic legend Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs is arguably the most important character in this film. He was actually, in real life, a mentor to Cameron Crowe. He gave him his first job in writing. He let him write for Cream Magazine, all these different things. And he was a dear mentor and friend. And Cameron has said of all the roles, he was most concerned with getting Lester correct, getting him as he was because he was such an important role model in his life. And Philip Seymour Hoffman being the amazing actor that he was embodied Lester and gave a fantastic performance that that Crow just loved. We also have Jason Lee, who plays Jeff Bebe, the lead vocalist in Stillwater. Uh, and then you 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 fill out the rest of the supporting cast, and it reads quite impressively. We have Zoe Deschanel, who was not a huge star at the time, uh, as Anita, the role that had originally belonged to Kate Hudson. You also get Anna Paquin as Plexia. You get Jimmy Fallon as Dennis Hope, the the road manager. And the list goes on and on and on. Rain Wilson pops up there. Uh, Jay Barshell. Uh, it was the film debut of Eric Stone Street, who I'm sure many of you know from Modern Family. And then there's Patrick Fugit. Patrick Fugit plays the lead of William Miller. It was his first real film. He'd done a couple of episodes of things here and there, but nothing nothing huge. Uh, he lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. And in casting the role of William Miller, casting director Gail Levin had looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of audition tapes. And it wasn't till close to the very end that they came across Patrick. And from the get-go, Cameron Crowe connected with him and really thought he was in a similar place that he was when he was in this world. So they flew him out to L.A. It was the first time he'd ever been there and brought him in to audition with Kate Hudson and some of the other players. And the mixture of talent, but also just awe of the world around him gave him that mixture that was really what William's going through and really sold the part for him. Once everyone was locked in and they, they started going into production, the first thing they really had to do was create the band. Um, Stillwater is as much of a character in this film as anyone else. And they sent the four of them to what they called rock and roll school. So we have Billy Crudup and we have Jason Lee as the guitarist and the lead singer, respectively. They also rounded it out with John Fedevic and Mark Kozekel who are actual musicians, you know, they, they weren't actors. They were a drummer and a bassist and, you know, they really sent them away for six weeks to find their voice as a band and find how they play together and find their dynamic. And that was one of the most important things to Crow because one of his biggest fears was that they would come off on screen as, 
just a movie band, you know, one that, oh yeah, we threw together some people and, you know, laid down some music and let them dance around. But in the end, all of them deliver. After the six weeks at rock and roll school, they had a, I guess you'd call it an inaugural concert uh, of Stillwater and Jason Lee uh, was quoted as saying, you know, when those lights came up and you're staring out at 200 extras who are screaming your name, it's what he imagines as the closest thing to a real rock and roll show. And they all fed off it. And you can really see it in their performance, you know, especially when they're on stage, you can see a camaraderie there. Um, The other big thing that Crow pushed for was authenticity, especially when it came to locations. These were places that Cameron Crow had had been to. This is all from his biography, and he wanted them to read as authentic as possible. And one of the big set pieces that they ended up using was the the Continental Riot House uh, in Los Angeles. And for that, they actually were able to shoot in the real Riot House. They completely gutted the entire lobby and and recreated it to its heyday. They found images of the original carpeting and things like that and recreated it as it was. They tore down walls. They tore down one wall and found the original center staircase that was there just kind of walled off and restored that to its beauty. And that authenticity gives all of those scenes such a higher level of realism and really pulls you into what you assumed the 1970s was really like. And that quest for authenticity kind of lent itself to the production as a whole. One of the major scenes in the film is the bus scene in which Elton John's Tiny Dancer plays. It's a huge turning point in the script. It's one of my favorite scenes of all time. And when they were filming it, you know, it was going okay, but didn't feel right. And as so often happens with productions, they, you know, started running out of time and were like, yeah, okay, can we just get this here? And we got to go on to the next scene. And I, I offer huge props to cinematographer John Toll, who during the shooting of this scene saw that Crow was feeling rushed and didn't feel good about it and kind of looked at him and said, like, hey, this scene is like really important to you, isn't it? And Cameron looks back, he goes, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. And Toll says back, hey, let's talk to the team. Let's move the schedule around. Let's find the time that you need for this. And they ended up spending an extra two days on this scene on the bus. And it really, you know, you feel the music in that scene and you feel everyone's reaction to the music. And that is really what this film is all about. And speaking of the music, what would this movie even be without it? The music sung by Stillwater, you know, Fever Dog and all the others, was written for the most part by Nancy Wilson, who is married to Cameron Crowe. But more importantly, was the lead guitarist and backup singer for the band Heart. Her, along with Peter Frampton, wrote all of the original songs, wrote some of the score, kind of led the charge on the musical layout in this in this film. 
which is not to say that Crow didn't have any sort of say in the musical layout. That's that's definitely not true. The two are quite the team. Many of the songs, including Fever Dog, they they actually wrote on their honeymoon back in 1986. We can sidebar here and give you a point of reference for how long this story was stewing in the back of Cameron Crowe's mind. So yeah, as I said, there's all kinds of classic rock musicians in this. There's The Who, there's Black Sabbath, there's Simon and Garfunkel, there's The Beach Boys, Joni Mitchell, Humble Pie, The Allman Brothers, The Guess Who. The list goes on and on and on and on. Interesting side fact here. Normally when you look at a film, the the music licensing budget is not huge, maybe a million dollars or something like that. The licensing budget on this film was $3.5 million, which is massive. The other major player that I didn't mention there that's in this film is Led Zeppelin. You may or may not be familiar with the fact that Led Zeppelin is notoriously stringent with who they give rights. They are very selective, but they knew Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe had toured with them. And after he had finished the movie, he flew out to London with a copy of the film and showed it to them and said, hey, here's what I want. Here's, you know, where I think y'all's music will fit in. And for the first time in a long time, they agreed to license some of their songs to him. The last time they had done so was a solid 18 years earlier uh, in 1982. Ironically, for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which Cameron Crowe had also written. So they ended up licensing four songs to him, four of the five he asked for. They wouldn't license Stairway to Heaven. Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin is notoriously protective of. They had actually shot a scene in the film, and I recommend if you have the time to look it up on, on YouTube, where William plays pretty much all of Stairway to Heaven to his mother in an attempt to prove that rock and roll isn't just about sex and drugs but is actually about the music and the poetry and raising the collective consciousness of of the world. So that scene ends up not making it into the film. But so it goes, you know. It's Led Zeppelin, what are you going to do? So, after the production wraps, Stillwater has their final performance and actually plays the rap party of the film. And Cameron Crowe said it was like going to the last concert of a favorite band that it breaks your heart that they're going separate ways and you don't know what you can do and you, anything you can think of to keep them to stay together. He, he, he made the comment that he wishes they would actually take this as a tea and go out on tour. I know. I, I think that speaks volumes to the level to which that group really became a band. So the film premieres uh, at the 2000 Toronto Film Festival in early September of 2000 and gets a limited release uh, a a couple weeks later on September 15th. It opens at 131 theaters and makes about $2.3 million. Uh, A couple weeks later, it goes wide uh, on September 22nd to exceedingly positive reviews. To this day, it stands at an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes and all the reviews talk heavily about the authenticity of the characters that you feel. And that's really the thing to me, at least that makes almost famous stand apart is 
you feel how real these characters and how rich these characters are. You feel the conflict in Penny Lane. You feel the conflict within the band and each of their individual reactions to what's going on. You feel William get pulled in all kinds of different directions. And when you can connect on that level with so many characters in the film, you feel like you're part of it. And that's really, I think, what Cameron Crowe was was really going for in this. There are some critics out there that say it glosses over a lot of the darker aspects of rock and roll about the sex and the drugs and all those kinds of things. But Cameron Crowe doesn't look at it as an examination of rock and roll music in that time. He thinks of it as his love letter to those times, as his love letter to rock and roll. Because for him, and I know I sound like I'm in the movie right now, but it's about the music. In 2005, Cameron Crowe told Paste Magazine that And I'm quoting here, yeah, sex and drugs are part of rock and roll, but a true musician never picks up the guitar at first because they just want sex and drugs. It's usually because a record blew their head off and they never could go back to whatever they wanted to be before. And that's how I think of Almost Famous. It's about getting your head blown off by a piece of music and everything else is secondary, Uh, end quote. And I really appreciate that. Yes, there's always the darker side of that, but maybe this is just me, but I always appreciate, oh, this is going to sound so dorky. I always appreciate a feel-good movie that leaves you with a smile on your face than a dark, gritty, depressing look into the dark side of rock and roll. But I, yeah, I know. Anyway, that's me. Uh, as I said, they open wide on September 22nd, exceedingly positive reviews. The film ends up getting nominated for four Oscars. Uh, You look at Best Actress for Kate Hudson, Best Supporting for Frances McDormand, Best Editing for Josh Hudson and Sar Klein, uh, and then Best Original Screenplay for Cameron Crowe, which he goes on to win. Uh, And then it also actually goes on to win a Grammy as well for Best Compilation Soundtrack. So that's, that's pretty awesome. It opens at number three on its wide release. Uh, with $6.9 million in its opening weekend. The top movie that weekend was called Urban Legends Final Cut, which is a movie by Sony that I've never heard of, um, but it did $8.5 million to Almost Famous's 6.9. So that'll bring us home. That's my, my breakdown of Almost Famous here. I think it's fairly obvious from the way I talk about this, but this movie means a lot to me. This movie came out in 2000 just as I was going into high school and and both helped refine the music taste that I was already building and gave me a wider scope of what that music meant to the people that were there and what music can mean to people and I don't know I think I saw it for the first time at a very important time for me so as I said it's it's very near and dear to my heart so I'm going to bring us back down here to the quick facts. The title Almost Famous stems from the people that Crow would see at the concerts when he was young who were standing just off stage. The people who you didn't know what they really did to get up there, but you knew they were special because they were up there. The people that existed in a proximity to fame. The Almost Famous. 
There was also actually a real band called Stillwater based out of Macon, Georgia. And during the production, Cameron Crowe was very upfront and honest with what was going to happen in the film and what he would be using the name Stillwater for and how it appeared and went and made sure that he had the blessing and the rights to use Stillwater as the name of the band, which, you know, the members of that band are, were very appreciative of five to one. He probably could have gotten away with it if he had just used it, but you know, the music's important. The character of Penny Lane is uh, an amalgamation of several different women that Cameron Crowe knew during that time, but is based mainly on a woman named Penny Trumbull. She was a good friend that traveled with him a lot during his days with Rolling Stone. Um, Not with him per se, that's not a fair assessment, but they ran in the same circles. And they remain friends to this day. She lives, I believe, uh, in Portland, Oregon. And as I said, it opened at number three on its wide release with 6.9 million. It had a domestic run for 67 weeks, which is kind of huge. A lot of that has to do, I think, with its Oscar nominations. But September through March, that's that's a heck of a run. Although it had a domestic total of only $32.5 million. You tack onto the top of that an international of $14 million, which 2000 is early before a lot of box office revenue came from international markets. But also, this is a very American-based film. But in its whole run, it landed with a total of $47.3 million. Not great, not bad, kind of a middle-of-the-ground performance. But four Oscar noms and, and a win, yeah, that's the metric I'd go off of. So with that, I'm going to bring it back here to my Exhibit A demo tape, my West Coast style DDH double IPA. Um, it's it's aged pretty well. I do feel like it's gotten warmer than a lot of my beers do uh, while I drink this. I don't know if that's really like a thing. Do beers warm at different temperatures? I have no idea. I'm going to have to find out about that. But it's still really good. It's still really balanced. And I'm enjoying it. I Exhibit A has put a few of their demo tape beers into wider circulation. Um, <laughs> if anyone there actually listens to this podcast, I would I would throw a coin in the fountain for this one making that jump. But overall, yeah, it's it's really nice. And for what it's worth, it makes me really happy. Uh, on this artwork, there's a cassette tape. And on the bottom right-hand corner, it says cassette tape 42. 42 being the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And that'll bring us home for episode 13. As always, I hope you'll hit that like or subscribe button. Be sure to check me out on social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. You can check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd and my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll tune in next time when I break down a more recent film, but one that also has a killer soundtrack. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast.